This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the Asia Torah Essentials Room, overlooking the Western Wall in Jerusalem. So, today we're going to be handling a subject of uh, personal growth and the first and foremost important thing when it comes to personal growth is to recognize that that any identity any identity personal identity how you doing? any identity is too much identity can i get you to sit right here please thanks any identity personal identity is too much identity. The Judaism has this goal of you becoming no one. And when I say no one, you have to understand what I mean by no one. I mean really no one. Meaning like almost like Lahavdil Eastern traditions, no one. Because think about it when you're no one you're you're in like an amazing position Uh, here's a nice spot right here next to this lady when you're no one you're in an amazing position because you're in no position (laughs) you see by being someone the second you're someone there will always be someone above you in those categories and below you in those categories the people above you in those categories you'll judge you'll say ah that guy's a no good nick and the people below you in that category, you're like, if, you know, you get haughty, you get, you know, arrogant. You know, that, guy, that guy's a loser. You know? So the second you're someone, you're automatically now put on a chart in comparison with others. But when you're no one, so you're, there's no comparison whatsoever. <laughs> I'm nobody, you're nobody, so we're both, meaning, meaning I'm no identity, you're no identity, and, and therefore we can connect. We can be connected together, and it's it's a blessing, really. For for it's a blessing to meet you. It's a blessing to know you. I actually will when you tell me your name. What's your name? Emmanuel. You'll tell me your name, Emmanuel. I'll actually hear it. You notice people tell you your name. You ever notice people tell you their name and you totally missed it? Mm-hmm. It like goes right over your head. Hi, here's a nice spot for you right here. Um, people people will tell you their name and it goes right over your head you missed their name like why'd you bother asking if you know name the reason why you don't remember someone's name when they tell you their name is because you don't know where you stand in the scale with this person this person you could get to know this person and find out that you're a total idiot compared to this person so until you know where you are in the scale with that person you're not really that interested in knowing their name you're not interested in knowing them at all perhaps so, so even meeting someone is full of anxiety because what will it mean for your identity to meet this person? Where are you going to stand when you get to know them? So, so Judaism recommends no identity. Any identity is too much. I'll give you another example. Uh, one of the most important things when you're growing up as a kid is love from your mother and your father. That's the key to love is parents. Love from your parents. But I'm sure, I'm not going to ask you to show your hands, but I'm sure if we asked you to show, raise your hands, um, 
like at a scale of one to ten, what good, how good did they do in their job of making sure you had like a really full and complete love? I'm not talking about how much they love you. They definitely loved you at ten. Question is, how good were they actually administering the love? How good was their USB cable? between you and your mother, you and your father. And you'll see that it's some other number. It, it's some other thing. It's not 10. And nor would my kids give a 10. I mean, they'd probably give a 10. But if you ask them, no, but if you ask them 10 years from now, and they start really thinking about, like, how much I traveled, how busy I was, that they would likely say, give another number later. And, yeah, and the, meaning now it's all they know. But later they'll look back. You know what I mean? When you retrospect your parents, you're like, oh my gosh. Like, what was he thinking when he taught me? You know, there's nothing like fathers imparting wisdom to their son. And then the son thinks about it 20 years later going like, oh my gosh. Like, like yeah, my father taught me a lot. Exactly what not to do. <laughs> you know, it's like your greatest teacher, it turns out to be, he was your greatest teacher. He taught you what not to do and what not to say. You don't say What's up, Shiv? Yeah, I keep it on me now because now I can see my. Oh, that's a good question. Press the power button. Yeah, no. You're not talking about saying on the radar. What's that? You're not about saying that individuals should say under the radar. As a parent? No, no, as an individual. And you said before, don't, you know, wait where you should be. Don't think of somebody or. Oh, being under the radar. Yeah, I'm not talking about being under the radar. Now, so Judaism says no identity. So let's go back to parents. So whatever love we got, Baruch Hashem, thank God we got it. Whatever love we didn't get, you'll notice that in your adult relationships, you're always trying to make up for it. You're always trying to make up for it. You're making up for the missing love. And, and you'll see that the way you make up for it is crazy. You do crazy stuff when it comes to relationships. Why? Because instead of having all the amazing relationships that could make up for all the missing love from your upbringing, instead of having them, and certainly people have made themselves available to you, you know, like people have definitely given you the opportunity for the relationship. But what do we always do? We always shoot ourselves in the foot and sabotage our relationships. We're always sabotaging them. <laughs> why are we doing that? You want to know why? Because your identity is wrapped up with missing the relationship. And so having the relationships would be your biggest crisis because you don't know who you are anymore. Meaning you have an identity crisis, Emmanuel, when, you're, when someone gets too close. Because you, you need that distance because you'd rather want love than have it. Because you, you get attached to the identity of wanting it. So that if you ever have it, God forbid, just kidding, if you ever have it, you have to somehow destroy it. So that you can want it. Because you prefer to want it. Because it's locked up in your identity to want love rather than have it. I generally go pretty deep pretty quick. So I apologize if you didn't expect us to be going here. But this is... You're used to it. <laughs> this is where we go. So, so you get what's going on here? But what did I start with? Is that identity is your nemesis. Identity is the enemy. It's your enemy regarding interaction with people, as we already discussed, because it already puts you on some scale. 
It's your enemy regarding getting the love you need that was, has been offered many times, but you've had to perfectly destroy it. Can you give an example already? Of destroying it? Of the whole thing that you just said. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'd give a couple examples. Uh, one example is a husband coming home late. A husband coming home late when he didn't really need to come home late, meaning he could have been home on time. But he's, he's perfectly coming home late because that will perfectly upset his wife, who perfectly gets upset. Like, she shouldn't get upset. She'd say, I want love, and love just got home. Okay, love is late, but it got home. So I can either have it or want it, and I think I'll have it. But instead, it's a perfect storm for both of them, meaning they both get exactly what they wanted. You get, they both got what they wanted. He, got, he came home late so she'd get mad, and now he can want her connection. And she now got mad and put him in the doghouse, so now she can want her connection. And it's amazing how daughters come in like vultures when the, when the, man, when the father's in the doghouse. The daughters come running in to like heal the father <laughs> so which is really good for the man because because the mother only has so long she's going to let the daughters come put bandages on you know so the mother's like oops falling on my job better be nice to him and the mother comes swooping in throws off all the daughters and you know and comes back to her position you know of being the the receiver of his love and his connection and all that stuff Meanwhile, the husband thinks she's totally schizo, but really he's the one who's schizo because why did he sabotage? He could have been home on time. So that's one example of marriage. Um, there's other examples. I, I recently, a couple weeks ago, I had a, a very sad girl come in whose uh, who's, uh, father, whose father is, is ill. He's ill and she never got his love. And so what she did was she she just went to get love as a teenage girl where love is found for teenage girls, which is in really sleazy guys. And, and I was explaining, but she was staying pure. She was staying pure, like as best as she could, staying pure. And he's offering her alcohol and she's like, I don't drink. And he's offering her weed and she's like, I don't smoke. But he, she's, he's breaking down. Like every time they go out, he breaks another brick in her wall. And, and, and we all know what he really wants. And I said, I, I told this girl, I said, you got to break up with him and you got to get healing for your heart over, you know, the fact that your father wasn't in your life. And, and I told her straight out that the, if the second he wins and he's going to win, if you don't stop, if you don't break up now, he's going to win. Second he wins, you'll be blocked from his social media. He will immediately block you. Meaning all the love. Cause, cause, and she was like, how do you know? <laughs> How do you know? He loves me. And I said, do you know his track record before you? Do you know what he was up to before he met you? And she's like, no. And I'm like, well, I think you should find that out first. And then I said to her, tell me, would it put you in a better place or worse place if he wins this? She says, a much worse place. And I said, what kind of love puts the other person in a worse place? And she was like, uh, never thought about that. Like, here I think he loves me, but it would put me in a categorically much worse place. So is he loves me or he's out to destroy me? 
And she suddenly realized that this man's out to destroy her. And I told her, you will not commit suicide because you know me. And suicidals never commit suicide when they have someone. Did you know that? All the, anytime you hear of a suicide, it's always because they had no one. And the, all, as long as you have someone, they don't commit suicide. They call you. I get called. I got called last week. I was, was 2 in the morning. I was exhausted, finally going to sleep. I was in the mountains in West Massachusetts. I'm finally going to sleep. Right then, bah, what's that? With the two words, it's over. So of course I called this, you know, some girl in Brooklyn, and I'm like, I'm like, well, those are the right words to get Rabbi Glazer to call you at two in the morning. You know, <laughs> she started laughing. So this is the person she she was giggling because she realized she's just, you know, she was just trying to get get some kind of, you know, help and you know just get get a phone call and be able to talk, but. And the next time I was in bed was four in the morning. It was two hours on the phone. That was just, you know, I was basically being a cheerleader. I was just shaking pom poms the whole time. You know, you can do it. Is that you know? work? Go, go team, go. What? Does that work in the long term? What? Shaking pom poms? Yeah, cheerleader. I thought you were more of a. This was the middle of the night. I'm just trying to get her through the through the through the through the night. You know, like let's just get her through. No, I, I was saying there was believe me there was serious content during those hours. There was serious content. For example, um, one of the things I told her was that you know you could easily take your. I said, "Do you have a credit card?" She says, "Yeah." I said, "Whose credit card is?" She's like, "My parents." And I said, "But how much can you charge?" And she said, "It's not limited, but it's their credit card." I said, "Do you realize that you could go to a travel agent or even an airport desk and buy a ticket to Fiji?" And then sign in in some hotel, and you'd be sitting on a beach chair in paradise within 24 hours, not a worry on your mind, watching gorgeous clouds just floating over your little island. And you could really stay there for a long time. <laughs> no one would ever really stop you. I mean, the credit card, the bank eventually is going to cancel the card. You know, your parents aren't going to call fraud. It's their daughter. And thank God she's still alive. Like... When as deep a hole as you think you're in, you could be in Fiji tomorrow and totally forgetting about anything you're going through. You know what I told her next? I said, but you know what would happen after about a week is the jail you feel inside that you think you're in is not out there. It's in here. You're in your own jail. (laughs) Don't worry. I spoke deep. Yeah. You're in your own jail. Have you ever thought about that? We so we often look at our circumstances and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm trapped. But you'll notice that person will move or run away or they go somewhere only to find out they're trapped. So they, eventually we have to realize our, it's our own trap. It's not, the trap is not our work. It's not our marriage. It's not our parents. It's not our, our school. It's not our, the trap is our dysfunctional thinking. That's the trap. Back to identity. So we're on the subject of identity now. And, um, and the example, we just gave two examples of how, how our identity, we, we identify with wanting so much so that having is an identity crisis. And the example we gave of that was love. But many people have this with money. Many people have this with money where they, they, 
they have a lack, not that they have a lack of money, they have a lack internally, and they just can't stop making money. And the, uh, some of you guys are thinking, that would be a good problem. <laughs> wouldn't, I wouldn't mind that. Yeah, except you're listening to a man who would have loved to meet this most incredible personality, whose name was Sam, Sam Glazer, who lived in Los Angeles. And I would have loved to have met him. I heard he was just the most amazing guy. Um, he died after seven heart attacks, meaning only the seventh one got him. Like, this guy was strong. Like, he got, you know, many heart attacks, and he died after the seventh. And, uh, but he was such a workaholic. He had money. He could have retired it. He, after the first heart attack, he, the doctors probably sat him down and said, like, you're in a high-stress business, retire. Like, just move to Palm Springs and count your money. He would have lived a long life. He, the genes are incredible in this family. Everyone lives till their 90s. He was in his 50s. It's a shame, right? I could have met Sam Glazer. You know who Sam Glazer was? My grandfather. My grandfather. My father's father. I never got to meet him. I spent my whole life hearing stories about a man who should have bounced me on his knee. But he couldn't stop because wanting was more important than having. And he had, but it didn't do anything. Having didn't matter. You get, you get where I'm at? So, I... Yeah, good. Is it possible... What's your name? Avi? Josh. Josh, Josh. Josh. Uh, is it we met in the airport, by the way. He helped me with my bags. <laughs> is it possible to, to be a somebody or to feel like a somebody and still be humble and not jealous at the same time? Is that what you're saying? Like, sure. Yeah, but that's a, that's a whole different path. To, to have identity, but be humble and not judgmental. It'll be a lifetime of work, meaning you always have to work on not judging, and you're always going to have to work on humility and stuff. What I'm talking about is no work. Just be no one, and if you're no one, you don't have to work, because you're already no one to begin with. Now, by the way, how long do you think your ego is going to let you be no one? Yeah, not very long. I think of like a famous actor, somebody's like a big shot. Being nobody is being nobody. I, it's an interesting question. What's more work? Being somebody and working on humility or being nobody and working on staying nobody? <laughs> which one? So the answer is, well, I don't know the answer which one's more work, but the, but the one you should go for is the true one. What's the true one? The nobody one. Because... When I say nobody, now we got to define the word nobody. We never did that. Let's define it. When I say nobody, I mean soul. Identify with the one part of you that's eternal. It's your soul. What do you think, Emmanuel? I just came in here to talk about being nobody. <laughs> nobody means the soul. It's your neshama. Your soul, the eternity of you. Your actual eternity. The part of you that lasts forever. It's always there. Notice it's here right now. Everyone give a snap. Just give us that one, two, three. You're all here. You're consciously in this room right now. So your soul is here. And it's always been here. You could have snapped an hour ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. You would be there. It's always there. Never goes away. So that nobody is your conscious awareness that you have right now of being present. You're present. And that presence is eternal. It never goes away. What's the one thing that gets in the way of it? Thinking, your thinking obscures it. The ego obscures it. The self-identities obscure it. It gets obscured, but all it takes is a little, con 
a little consciousness to cut it, cut right through it, and then you're here, present, soul, eternally. Why eternally? Why am I saying that's eternal? Because hasn't it always been there? If I came up to you when you're five years old, you'd probably actually be very present because five-year-olds are very present. Wouldn't you be right there in that moment, totally present? I'd probably be going like this to you. You'd be like, like that, and you'd be totally there. Well, you're totally here now. And you'll be here totally in 10 years somewhere. And wherever I'd find you, you'd be there. Now, our mind tends to throw ourselves into the future, all the worry and all the concern. And we have so much of things that happened in the past that's constantly like kind of throwing mud on who we are now. But once you get present with that snap, everyone give a snap on four, one, two, three, and you get present. So that's eternal. The thing that gets in the way is the mind. When we die, the mind goes, they call it brain dead. When we go brain dead, now you're really conscious. Now, some of you are like, how do we know? How do I know I'm really conscious when I die? Well, notice whenever you stop thinking, you get present. So thinking is what gets in the way of presence. Now, that's not a glot proof, obviously. A glot proof would be, you know, to... To die and then feel your soul. That would be a perfect proof that you feel your soul. And there's many others, the life after life proofs. But but uh, what keeps you from being present is the thoughts. And uh, when you stop doing all the thinking, you actually get present. And in that presence, that presence is always there. And we say this in Judaism all the time. We say, V'chaye olam natav betochenu. Vechaye olam, eternal life, nata, you planted, betochem inside of us. Shem put eternal life inside of us. It's called the soul. It's your eternity. The more you identify with it, meaning the more time you spend, like if you add up the hours of your day, the more hours you are, for us probably, minutes, but the more minutes you were in it, you were not comparing yourself to others, you were having instead of wanting, you were present, loving, caring, Connected. What more do you want? You can't get better than that. So that's the eternity. That's connecting to the eternal part of you. It's the soul, which we all share. You're not on a scale. There's no comparison scale when you're on the soul. You're connected. What's up, Yitzi? We got Andrew Schiff, Yitzi Bob. How you guys doing? Um, just wondering, uh, is it cool with me this close to you or am I too close? Cause I think the sound's probably a little better. So send a comment if it's better. Usually I'm, I'm like over here. Mm-hmm. I think it might be better. And it's also great cause I can see the comments. Okay. How are we doing? Everyone good? Present? Clear? Okay, good. Um, Question? How do you show love? What? How do you show love? How do you, How do you show love? Too There's too many questions. What's the question? Start again. How do you build love? Build love for people? You shouldn't really have to build love. So if you're in a situation where you have to build love, you my my uh Advice is to is to 
see the innocence of the person. We love innocent people. We love innocent people. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're watching a movie and you see these inner city kids and you, and of course you know when you watch a movie they always make you fall in love with like the main the main uh, character. But then what happens? The main character falls in with a bad crowd of like young teens. You know, he's 14, he falls in a bad crowd. And then they wind up doing a hit and they kill somebody. And and our character is the guy who did the killing. And now it goes on and now he's hiding and and he's running and he's hiding and he's running. Are you cheering for him? Cheering for him? Yeah, you're cheering for him. They set it up that way. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. You're in love with the kid. You, you cheer for him. You cheer for him. Meaning you realize he was a victim in the beginning. He was a victim. And so you're like, oh, by the way, now you've seen all kinds of good things come out of him because he's feeling the guilt and he realized he got wrapped in the bad crowd and now he's like, now he's just on the run and, and he like really repented. In fact, you see him save somebody in one of the scenes. Where, where, like, someone's getting hit by the same gang, and he comes into his own gang and just punches them all out and tells the guy to run. Thank you. And then he runs, and you're, you're still rooting for him. And you so badly don't want him to get caught, because then he gets lost in the jail programs, and then he'll definitely be... Yeah, so what happens is there's certain, there's certain people in our lives that are challenged to love. It's a challenge to love them. And, uh, and the problem is you weren't at the beginning of the movie. You see, if any of us walked into that movie at the point where he kills the guy at 14, we would be like, you'd be watching him behind, you're like, he's in there. You're like, you almost yell into the cops, you know, who are running by. You know, he's under those tires. You know, everyone's like, shh. You know, because we came late to the film. And everyone in the theater is like, be quiet. You know, like, they shouldn't catch him. Because <laughs> so many of us have fallen victim to, you know, negative experiences with people. And we pretend the movie started right there. Movie didn't start there. His movie started, or her movie started years ago in some very painful times. Hey, ladies, we have a table for two right here. And uh, maybe one of you grab that seat back there. Sorry, sorry to separate you. Normally, I'd like to do a table for three, but we have tables for two today. Your stewardess will be right with you. Now, oh, why does Judaism concentrate so much on the head? Gemara. What do you think? This question and answer here. What was that previous one? Someone else asked something. Oh, blessings, and thank you for sharing your wisdom, Rabbi. <laughs> we love you, Yochanan. That's from, that's from New Zealand, in like the most remote place in the world. Yeah, there's more sheep than people there. <laughs> so, um, so maybe we'll handle that question in a sec. Why does Judaism concentrate so much on the head? Gemara. Okay. Um, but let's just finish that, is that when we have trouble loving somebody, it's because we're coming in the middle of the movie. All we have to do with that person, sometimes we know their history, meaning we at least learned about it at some point, or we, we're talking about when it's challenging to love somebody. 
So it's because you came in at the middle, like, like the part where you got messed up by them. So, but if you were at the beginning of their film, you would see that they never had the life tools to make it in life in a way that wasn't hurtful. People generally wound where they're wounded. People wound where they're wounded. Hurt people hurt people. And so the hurtful people we know, we didn't get to see the part of the movie where they got hurt. And if we did, we'd be cheering for them. But we didn't. We got hurt also. And so by, by seeing their innocence, by recognizing that they must have been, even if you don't know the details, they must have been injured in their process of life. And, and, uh, and what do you have for people you see injured? Compassion. Just like the kid in the film, you have compassion. So to this person, okay, you didn't get to see the beginning of their film, but you can have compassion for them because you know if they were never injured, they would never have done the harm they did to you. So... Anyway, that's one access to love, which you've heard me say that before. Um, and then just the question of Judaism concentrating so much on the head, like learning Gemara. This is a question, obviously, from a kid who was in yeshiva. Um, the the st- Jews have studied the Talmud for all of history, and um, and the, it's it's some might say it's overly emphasized today. Um, The Talmud's kind of like used today for, as a bridge between teenagehood and marriage. I mean, you're supposed to like, once your brain finally becomes a brain, which is, <coughs> let's say, 13, 14, meaning once a boy goes through puberty, we need, to, we need to put him in some kind of fridge or freezer till his wedding. Because otherwise they're just trouble. And Judaism requires way too much out of a 13-year-old till a 20-year-old that no teen's interested in any of that stuff. So we got to put him on ice. we got to put the kid on ice till he gets married. So the way they've chosen to put kids on ice is by an extreme amount of Talmud study. They put him in Talmud study for... I've had my sons in Talmud study... Uh, some of them 8, 10, 12 hours a day of Talmud, Talmudic study, just to keep their minds busy with Talmudic study. And, uh, and I think what happens is if you really have your brain stretched across, like kind of stretched across pieces of difficult pieces of Talmud, there's not going to be a lot of brain left to do all the stupid things that teenagers think to do. Um, when you look at Jewish philosophy, which is highly spectrumed, you know, like really a broad spectrum of color, which they don't teach them, um, if you give them that spectrum, you're creating more potential for problems with the kids. So rather than developing them, which creates all these options, because Judaism really has all the colors of the rainbow, rather than giving them all that spectrum of Jewish thought, let's just get them into the Talmud and keep them busy. For these years, so so that's why the the Gemara is kind of the, the main subject for for the kids. Now, of course, it doesn't answer one third of the population's lives, and that's that. Uh, it's really not a third; it's more than a third. But there's three types of people: there's intellectuals, there's interpersonal people. I'm an interpersonal, like you'll notice, I'm very connective here, and I'm interpersonal by nature. And then there's instinctual people, who are very physical by nature. 
So the intellectuals, which is probably maybe 15% of, human, of Jewish men, intellectuals are um, perfectly happy being stretched across the Talmud for seven years, eight years. The um, interpersonals, they like the fact that they're amongst a bunch of men living in dorms and there's a lot of schmoozing and there's Shabbases and there's, and also we learn one-on-one, which means half the hour you're spending schmoozing and half the hour you're studying at best. And, uh, but you know, you, it, you can deal with it if you're an interpersonal type. But the, the other, you know, I don't know, what's 15% gets you to 85, right? Is left. So 85 broken into two, let's say, between the interpersonals and the instinctuals. I don't know what to say. Let's say 40% are interpersonal and 45 are instinctual. Those instinctual guys, you put them in front of a Talmud, they think they're reading hieroglyphics. Yeah, they're, they're like looking at Chinese all day. And so it's, you're like killing the guy. So for them, it's, it's like murder, I believe. You know, they, they can survive it if they're very smart. Meaning he's instinctual, he's physical, very body, but brilliant, which is happens a lot with Jews, because Jews are generally pretty brilliant, and even though he's very physical, pretty brilliant. That's why you see so many high, very wealthy Jewish businessmen. Jewish businessmen are very instinctual men. They're very instinctual, but they're brilliant. See, we're used to instinctual people as being football players, and boxers, and wrestlers, and like you know, they're not the guys you ask financial advice from. You know, they're jocks. And whereas in Judaism, that instinctual guy is usually very smart. Very smart. And they do, the whole finance world is instinctual, brilliant men. They're very instinctual guys. I'm rubbing shoulders with them all the time as students. And they're, these guys are characters. I mean, they're just total characters. They aren't, spare them with Talmud. You know, like for sure when we have an hour together, we will not be studying Talmud. They're, they have no interest in that kind of intellectual pursuit. But they're brilliant in, the, in their minds. Now, putting those instinctual guys in Talmud study all day is kind of cruelty to animals. Yeah, It's not fair. They're very, you know, it, it sends them packing. And what happens is, what happens is the Torah institutions say that he's a no-goodnik. He's, a, he's like a defect. So now we've got a holy Jew feeling defective. <laughs> he goes, he drops out of yeshiva, becomes a businessman at age 16, selling stuff outside the yeshiva. You know, he gets great business skills by the time he's 18, 19, 20. The parents somehow, you know, by lying, marry him off. Then he, he really makes it. And he's, he, you're lucky if the guy wears a kippah after what he, what, after being told he's a, he's a Gentile by the head of the yeshiva. And what, what happens, though, 15, 20 years later, the yeshiva's kind of low on money. So the Rosh Yeshiva is going over the fundraisers. with the fundraisers. They're going over the roster. And they're like, oh, yeah, that guy Goldstein, he made a lot of money. Let's call him. So the Rosh Yeshiva gets on the phone. Yeah, Shlame Goldstein. Yeah, how you doing? It's your old Rosh Yeshiva. Shlame Goldstein's like, you, <laughs> you're lucky I'm still observing. <laughs> you, know, you know, he hangs up the phone. So the funny thing is, is that they kill the one-third. It's not even a third. I told you before, it's more like 45%. They kill the 45% that are the most likely guys to what? To And to support the yeshiva. Yeshivas are major expense. And the people that would have been supporting it are the ones they kill. 
They're the ones, they come and you shoot with a target on their head, and <laughs> believe me, they shoot. You know, and so, and so the people most likely to support the yeshivas are the ones who are disenfranchised by the yeshivas, which is, so I hope you like, the, I hope you like my answer, uh, Gavin Marsden. And, uh, and you look like a cute guy smiling there on your little, your little, uh, profile picture. So, uh, anyway, lots of blessings to you and don't forget to support yeshivas after what you've been through. And, uh, <laughs> uh, just a quick, uh, quick plug, um, tonight is the Possible Use Seminar. I've been running a seminar now internationally with a, an amazing, amazing array of some 5,000 graduates. Uh, I've been teaching it for 17 years. It is a, a magical mystery tour down the wormhole of your life, of what your, what the identity you created. Now, you should know that probably 85% of who you are is, is in your blind spot, meaning you don't even see it. Like, you think I see my hands right now? I don't see my hands. So you think you know who you are, but you'd be shocked to find out in the work that about 85% of who you are is back there. It's in the blind spot. And you're filtering out what I'm saying right now in this whole class you heard. You're filtering out via your experience of life. Do you realize, I keep using you because I know your name, but Emmanuel, do you realize if you were born 100 yards over, you'd hear my class differently? You get that? Yeah, yeah. What about 100 miles over? Even more different. 1,000 miles, <laughs> different country, it'd be totally different. You get that? So what you start to realize is the way you experience life is always filtered through your own life story. But your own life story is the most random thing in the world. It's just, you know, your sibling order, your where you were born, all that. And so what happens is in the possible you is we spend six nights together. Tonight's the first night. By the way, I'm, I, I can't speak for God, but if you happen to be in my class today, you know, when I'm finally back, and tonight I'm beginning one of these. This is my last, my first and last one of the entire summer. I mean, I just ran four this last winter. And because of my travels, I'm also traveling in, in a few more weeks. I'm only running one all summer. Um, anyone can come tonight. There will be pizza served for dinner. Um, anyone can come tonight because a lot of people will come tonight and wind up signing up in another country because meaning wherever country they're from. But at least here the first night, experience it. It's free. The first night's free anyway. It's um, six nights straight um, for those who commit to it. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Sunday night. And so six nights straight, you will have an actual professional coach who will coach you through the experience. It's not easy. It's extremely intense. Um, there will be a lot of meditation, a lot of tears. It's sponsored by Kleenex Tissue. Um, you know, it's going to be a very intense experience. And, uh, but, and the coaches stick with you. You know, you're not dropping like a hot potato next Sunday, nor will I drop anybody. Um, and it is a, it is a wonder what happens because around midway through the seminar, about Wednesday, what happens is your whole way of seeing reality starts getting cracks in it. It like starts fissuring with cracks and then those cracks just kind of, you kind of like step out and you're like looking at your life just like, like, duh, like, where have I been? And then you see your father or your mother or your spouse or your kids or your siblings. And you're like, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen. You're suddenly present because you've been filtering. 
Now, all that filtering you do, you should know, is for protection. It's, it's self-protection things, layer upon layer, that are totally unconscious to us. We've been protecting ourselves. What are we protecting? We're protecting thoughts about ourselves that happened when we were very young. Thoughts about ourselves, descriptions about ourselves that are our own little secret, deep, 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 dark secret about ourselves. And so we protect through our personality. No one should ever know about this. Deep, deep down. And then all of a sudden you realize when you look deep, deep down, you find out that it's just a little Cracker Jack prize. It's nothing true. It's just that you got teased once. Or it's just that your father's a kind of certain way that started making you think certain ways about yourself. You start to realize none of it's true. So the whole entire filtering mechanism that you created was to, was to protect you from ever having a thought about, a belief about yourself exposed that you find out in the end wasn't even actually true about you. And then you step out of that space and start looking at the world from what is, what is my interaction with the world when I no longer have to protect myself and I'm safe. And all of a sudden a whole incredibly loving and present connective person comes out. And I can't begin to tell you what that does financially to come into job interviews or school interviews or, you know, or dating interviews or, you know, for those who are single, when you're loving and connected and free and safe. Because when you're safe, everyone else is safe. Think about how unsafe you are to others. And you're thinking like, I'm unsafe. No, think how unsafe you are to others. And think how safe you could be to others. And what you'll realize is you being safe to others because you're really okay in the end creates like almost a lubricant for your life. Financially, health, relationships, things move very smoothly when you're safe. And the way you get safe is by, because each one of us has our own story, like you have your own story about yourself and you have your own story. Each one of us has a different story. So what happens is each one of us has to go down the wormhole and look at the signposts on those inner roads to see where your, where your story is. And then you can, once you identify your story, you're like, this is a, this is a joke. And then you step out of your story and then you're free. Now there are other stories. It's not like a silver bullet that you're going to be story free. But at least you now have two things. One, you freed yourself from the stories that you worked on during the week of the seminar. And you now have a path, because I teach the tools, a four-step process to free yourself in the future. So anytime you see relationships aren't working or money's not working or something's not working, you can always go back down that rabbit hole You're independently, not with a seminar, just independently, and free yourself over and over again from these other layers that you were unaware of. So I'm going to give you a couple of, Ezra, can you hand out a couple of these, please? Yeah. And uh, I used to, even if you're, I, even if you're like, even like the slightest bit interested in doing this level of work, you got a free night tonight with pizza. So, by the way, I don't normally offer it. I just did because I've been out of town. I haven't been able to really, I just flew in. So I can't, normally I've like been building up a seminar, so there's no pizza. There's no pizza in the intros Thursday, but I got back Wednesday. Thursday was a celebration in the north, 
So I'm just kind of opening up tonight. Anyone can come tonight and totally check it out. Uh, sorry, ladies, it's men. And what did, what did you ask? Yeah. It's men's. This one's men's. And um, and then I have, uh, just so you know, I have Brooklyn, June 3rd. I have uh, men and women. Women start on the 4th. And then I have uh, Muncie, which is you know in the country of New York, will be June 10th. Women, June 11th start. And, uh, and then we have Mexico. Mexico's going to be in like a serious exotic resort for like... No, they, I've had Arizona Veal fly into New York. They used to fly here. New York's a cake compared to flying here. But yeah, people fly in for it. I generally st- keep this seminar off the West Coast. It's not... It's, I tried it once in L.A. and it was a uh, little too uncomfortable for people from the West Coast. You know, it, it's it's full court press. Like you know? This is not we're not playing half court here, and uh, it's there are there are nice half court seminars in the West Coast, but I found the East Coasters are up to the task. Yeah, there are a lot of East Coasters in Scottsdale. Mostly, she- yeah. Can Midwest people handle a little four court press? Yeah. What is it? They can't commit or fear of rejection? No, they can commit. It's just, it's just you know, they, they don't want you pressing all those buttons. Yeah. In L.A., you just leave each other alone. No one messes with anybody there. Like. Okay, everyone. So please come tonight. Uh, the location is off Ben Yehuda Street in town. So you just, uh, after Ben Yehuda, on Ben Yehuda, after, meaning once you cross King George, it's the second ride. It's Masila Yashirin. Um, this is men tonight. Uh, if anyone wants directions, this place. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.